broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Welcome to the show, everybody. Episode 808 of I Doubt It Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Dollimore. Joined today, as always, by the lovely, talented, scholarly host of the program, Brittany E. Page. Can I tell you, if I get another fundraising text message from Mm, Nancy Pelosi, I'm going to absolutely lose my mind. So, I've gotten two... I think I'm getting them daily. Well, well, I've only gotten two. Well, I've gotten three. This is the story. I've gotten two full-fledged. One's a picture of her. One's a picture of, like, Trump and somebody else. I think Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the third one I got was, oh, hey, we noticed that you clicked that link, but you actually didn't donate. Mm. We'd love to see you donate. You were doing an investigation by clicking on the link. Is that right? Yeah, because I got an AOC email that led me to abortion funds. Mm -hmm. And I got an Elizabeth Warren email that led me to abortion funds, not to give to their campaigns. Yeah. So I wanted to see maybe the language wasn't clear. I wasn't reading it right. Clicked it. No, it's given to Nancy Pelosi's campaign. Yeah. And like I said, if I get another one of these, I'm going to rage because, you know, I've been having some cathartic responses in the replies, knowing that they're not going to go anywhere, but they're good for me. They feel good. Oh, you mean you've replied to the tweets? To the text messages. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. The text messages. Always got Twitter on the brain. Yeah. 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 Um, Yes. And Can can we hear one? Or is it too... Sure, if you if you want an example. I mean, it's not super exciting. I just ask a question, and I ask... I'm, I can't wait. How was campaigning for pro-life, and I don't know how to say his name, but the candidate that ran against uh, Jessica Cisneros in yeah. Texas? I think Henry, his, his name is spelled C-U-E-L-L-E-R, I think. Yeah, so I said, how was campaigning for a pro-life candidate against an actual progressive... Oh, and then I guess I did say fuck off. So I, <laughs> I, but it didn't dissuade them from keeping continuing to text you. Well, that's because it's not going anywhere. It's not doing anything. No one cares. But it's just funny to me that she's sending these messages like, you need to act today. How we act today will decide the future of reproductive yeah. rights. Nancy Pelosi, how long have you been in Congress? Like since the 80s, right? She's yeah. been in Congress. And she's what? telling me how I act today, how I act yeah. today. What single time <laughs> has she forwarded a bill to the House to codify Roe into law? What What single time since she's been in office? Yeah, I mean, how about you? I mean, you're campaigning for pro-life Democrats. Don't come at me and tell me how yeah. I act today is going to be the determining factor in reproductive rights in the future. The the next message is going to be, hey, Brittany, this is Nancy Pelosi. Look, I know you told me to fuck off, (laughs) but we really need your help today. Wouldn't that be great? It like auto populates the algorithm what the last response was. (laughs) Oh, that might actually make me clean up and act right. But we we have gotten so many messages from listeners since Roe was overturned. and, And specifically, a lot of people have been asking, what can I do 
right now? Like, what can I do right now to support people? I feel helpless. I feel like I'm not doing enough. And one thing that you can do that would be very helpful is to support an organization called the National Abortion Federation. And this is an organization that you can donate directly to a fund that will fund care for patients seeking abortion services. Now, the things that they help them with, they cover gas cards that will cover a trip across state lines. They cover uh, flights for people who need to fly across state lines to get an abortion. Don't they make it easy? Like you can buy a $50 gas card or a, like they give you the amounts that you know that is going to go towards something specific. Yeah, they do have a screen that that has that information but when you actually donate on that page it takes you to another donation page so if you go to abortionafterrow.com and click donate you can look at these different things the $50 gas card the $100 hotel stay a $250 flight or $550 to fund an actual abortion for someone who's struggling to pay for it and that is really helpful. It will take you to prochoice.org. It's the same organization. Yeah, it's the I, same what I'm website. saying is it, it, they really uh, lay it out that what you're, the money you're donating is going to go to real tangible things that are going to help people who are, who are in need of and seeking the health care that they, that they can't get in their home state. Right. And then once you go to this donation page, you have three options. You can uh, support the operations hotline fund. You can support Rachel Falls Patient Assistance Fund, which covers the actual abortion care that people cannot afford. And then you can support the Dr. Tiller Patient Assistance Funds, which helps cover travel-related expenses. So you get to choose. Like, I'm donating this money. Do I want it to help with... Um, actual abortion care? Do I want it to help with the travel-related expenses? Do I want to help fund this hotline where people call and then are linked up with these services? You get to choose. You can have a one-time gift. You can do a monthly gift. This is an important way. So prochoice.org. I didn't, I mean, I don't want to be critical, but of the choices, I didn't hear one to donate to Nancy Pelosi's campaign. (laughs) Is that... Did I do that well enough? You didn't know where I was going. I know. I was like, what criticism does he have right now? Like, I was getting nervous. I started to sweat. I'm like, wait, what's wrong with this organization? Uh, yeah. So, no, so no Nancy Pelosi button. I, yeah, there's okay. unfortunately well, no. you know, you know, not everybody can be perfect. Not every organization can do can do the the hard work yeah. full time to support people who need uh, health care. Yeah. You know. Well, and if you want to show it to Nancy Pelosi, if you really want to show her, I'll show it to she's her. She's asking uh she's asking for $14 today. And rather than giving $14 to Nancy Pelosi, oh, great idea. Yes. Channel that into funds for the National Abortion Federation because they are actually doing the work to fund these services and helping people that need abortion. See, that is that's you know what? That's it. That's, That's the, the tweet. tweet. That's the fucking tweet. That's what you need to tweet that. <laughs> to do a tweet of that. Okay, well, I'll do that after the show. Is that okay? Uh, this or you just in from Nancy Pelosi. Hello, pores. <laughs> oh, what if people that are listening to this love Nancy Pelosi? I'm sorry, but she's not great. Yeah, what? I'm not sorry. I mean, I am sorry that she's not great, but I'm not sorry to the people who have some criticism. Yeah. I've been getting it on Twitter. Speaking of Twitter, mm-hmm. 
and in YouTube comments, because I, I did a pretty aggressive video the other day, and there's no script to my videos. I just get more and more worked up and pissed off. Mm-hmm. And what have they done? What have they done? Or he's like, oh, you got to vote for Democrats. Yeah, of course you got to vote for Democrats, because there's no other choice. If you don't vote, then we're completely fucked. Mm-hmm. But don't act like they've, they're champions and who have done everything, because they could have codified Roe into law decades ago and they did not even even the response i think from uh prominent officials in the democratic party democratic elected officials uh from kamala harris to joe biden oh the kamala harris one it it is remarkable how unenthusiastic the response has been not even saying anything about the two what two months that they had when the opinion draft actually leaked to start preparing for this moment. Yeah, and it seems like all they did was start preparing their fundraising emails and text messages to go out once the decision on Roe was actually announced. So let me, since we just mentioned it, I want to play this this a minute and a half clip between Dana Bash from CNN and Kamala Harris sitting down, and Dana Bash asks this question. Now that we have this new setup, I can actually play clips just right from a browser. So mm-hmm. um, this is Dana Bash asking that very question of Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States. Uh, and her response is, you'll be beside yourself. What do you say to Democratic voters who argue, wait a minute, we worked really hard to elect a Democratic president yeah. and vice president, yeah. Democratic-led House, yeah. a Democratic-led Senate. Do it now. But do what now? I, what now? I mean, we, we need, we, listen, what we did, we extended the child tax credit for the well, first I'm year. I'm sorry, when I say right? do what, yeah. do it now, yeah. act uh, legislatively to make abortion rights legal. We feel the same way. It, do it now. Congress needs to do it now in terms of permanently putting in place a, a, a clear indication that it is the law of the land that women have the ability and the right to make decisions about their reproductive care, and the government does not have the right to make those decisions for a woman. You what know, do you say to Democratic voters? Turn it off. You know, this is the thing that is frustrating because it isn't just that they've had the time since the opinion leak was uh, the draft opinion was leaked. They've known about this since they decided to take up the abortion case in Mississippi. Yeah. And so they have had plenty of time. What's going on in Mississippi? What's going on in Texas? We knew as soon as the uh, conservatives got appointed to the Supreme court by Donald Trump, that this is what they were after. Yeah. So where has the planning been? Where has the urgency? I'm receiving text messages every day about what I need to do and how I need to fund Nancy Pelosi. But where have they been with the planning? I mean, now you have AOC who is out there being very vocal about what needs to happen next, including that uh, Joe Biden needs to come out and uh, talk about expansion, expansion of the uh, Supreme Court, adding justices yes. to the Supreme Court, that he needs to end the Senate filibuster. He needs to come out and say that this is something he absolutely supports and that they must do. And use the bully pulpit of the presidency. Give a speech. Rally the troops. Rally the country around this idea rather than not saying it at all. Right, because when we have a rogue Supreme Court, what needs to happen 
is that elected officials need to step in and protect the rights that the court is yeah. after. And that includes same-sex marriage, right to contraception, interracial marriage. Separation of church and state. And they could codify all of this. Yes. Listen, and I, listen, we'll just we'll say this and, and move on from, from the, the criticism of the Democrats. Well, probably won't. But um, if you're out there and you're like, well, now's not the time to criticize Democrats. Again, when the fuck is then? When there's valid things to be said about missteps and mistakes and outright neglect, then what do you do? We just oh, it's it's there's never an it's everything's too important at every given time to ever say anything negative about Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or the Democratic Party itself when they failed us. They failed anyone out there who has ever sought or or in a position to seek an abortion. There is failure that needs to be called out. Otherwise, what kind of accountability can we ever hope for at all when they are brazenly, the day that this, this, this verdict gets announced, this ju- the, it's overturned and they're sending fundraising. That's how emboldened Nancy Pelosi is in her position. That's how safe she feels in office that, ah, fuck them. I'm their best choice. I'm their only choice. Somebody needs to primary her. We need rid of her. We need rid of these dinosaurs and get some people like the AOCs, like the, the Elizabeth Warrens, like Bernie Sanders's. And not, they don't have to be on that, uh, that wing, that spectrum of, of progressivism, but certainly people who are willing to actually put in the work and fight for their constituencies. I mean, even a basic expectation of just not campaigning for pro-life Democrats like that, especially <laughs> right. when Roe is under threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that seems like a very basic I really, low bar. I, I'm setting the bar, bar too high. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this seems very reasonable that the expectation would be, hey, don't campaign for pro-life Democrats when Roe is under threat. I mean, yeah. are we, can we not? Or ever. Ever, but especially <laughs> when Roe is under threat. I mean. It's- yeah, but she wants your $14. So again, I think that's a great idea, Brittany. Instead of of, of donating that fourteen dollars to 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 uh, Nancy Pelosi, maybe donate fourteen dollars to the this website, ProChoice.org. Or if you really feel rambunctious, double that donation and donate uh, twenty eight dollars mm-hmm. to that that organization. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. So uh, moving on, a lot. It has been insane with the news. We've got the January 6th committee that is that is out there right now uh, investigating the insurrection and all kinds of bombs are being dropped everywhere w- about the, the what they're learning through their investigation. And we also have, like you said, the rogue Supreme Court that is just decimating constitutional rights one after the other, whether it be allowing police to not inform um, defendants or suspects of their rights through Miranda or allowing public school employees to gather with students after a football game and to pray publicly on school time. It is no longer a court that wants to protect the Constitution, namely the First Amendment of um, respecting an establishment of religion. All they're concerned about is the 
the free exercise thereof, even if it violates the first clause. Now to the latest Supreme Court decision on prayer at public schools, siding with a high school football coach, finding he had a constitutional right to pray with players and other students after games. Our senior national correspondent, Terry Moran, has the latest from the court. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Michael. This is another major ruling from the court's emboldened conservative majority, and this time they're resetting that delicate balance between church and state. This morning, Coach Joe Kennedy says he is vindicated. I just wanted to coach football, and I wanted to be be able to give thanks afterwards. It wasn't a big deal. The Supreme Court's conservative majority ruling 6-3 to three, that the high school football coach has a constitutional right to pray on the job after games with players and other students right at the 50-yard line. Kennedy was suspended in 2015 by the school district in Bremerton, Washington, after they urged him to pray privately off-duty and away from games. The school district was concerned that a school official leading prayers on the job could be seen as a government endorsement of his religion. But the coach says his prayers were voluntary and protected by the Constitution. Nobody should be forced to pray. Nobody should have to hide their prayers. Everybody should be able to just you know, enjoy their freedoms as Americans. But some parents say their children were the ones whose freedoms were violated. They are being pressured into doing something that they don't fundamentally agree with. That's what the First Amendment protects us from. The Supreme Court disagreed. With Justice Neil Gorsuch writing for the majority, the Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression of religious and non-religious views alike. Justice Sonia Sotomayor dissented with the court's other two liberals, warning that the court's ruling elevates the religious rights of a school official over those of his students. Coach Kennedy's case became a rallying cry for many on the religious right, but others see the case as blurring the line between church and state and say some students may pay the price. Religious freedom is the shield that protects the rights of all students to believe as they choose until now. So what the court did here was shift the focus in these cases from concern about students who might feel they're coerced to pray when school officials do it to the religious liberty of those officials. And the court's not done with its work. They'll be issuing their final four cases, uh, big cases on immigration and climate change by the end of the week. So let's imagine, if you will, that this coach is, uh, first name is Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And after a game, he gathers his students and he takes off his shoes and he lays down a prayer rug. And he faces, he faces east. He faces Mecca. And he, he prays. An Islamic prayer. Let's even say he does it in Arabic. Oh, scary. This case would not be where it is right now. Mm -hmm. And the fact that people are poo-pooing the idea that students might feel coerced, he's the coach. If you don't take part in the team activity of 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 the prayer, maybe you don't get that starting spot. Right. Maybe there are ramifications. Right. And for this dumb fuck to say, well, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. I just want to give thanks. It's not a big deal. Well, it's a big enough deal that you brought it to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. It's that big a deal. Also, if it's not that big of a deal, then do it in your car after the game right. on the way home. In yeah. in quiet, in solitude, in your private time, in your car. Yeah, this is a radical, radical Supreme Court that we have. And they keep trying to act like it's private when if you look at a photo of it happening, it's very clearly not private. It's a spectacle. It's on it's, the 50 fucking yard line. It's a way to um, expose kids to Christianity. 
and for the those who do not participate to exclude them as not being a part of the in-group. So it's like some kind of enforcement of like social dominance and coercion to coerce these kids who want to be accepted and they want to be included. They want to participate. And maybe this isn't something they would ordinarily do, but then they feel pressure to do so. Yeah, and that's the point is he's a public school official that that's not his role. And of course, Jesse, the criticism that you just raised of this wouldn't happen if this were a Muslim prayer and a, uh, a Muslim football coach leading a Muslim prayer. Joe Kennedy was asked that question, responded to it. And in a classic, like jovial uh, church person way was like, absolutely. I would support. Right. There's no way, please. You're not fooling anyone. Also, let, look, let's take this back to the actual, what his beliefs are. I'm, I'm assuming he's a Bible believing Christian and knows that the new Testament is the, the mighty unfallible word of God. Matthew 6, 5, everybody, for your edification. Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their full reward. He is the hypocrite. He is standing on the street corner. In this case, it's the 50-yard line of a football uh, stadium in high school where there's Hundreds of spectators watching. Yeah. So let me read the final paragraph from Justice Sonia Sotomayor's dissent in this case. Quote, it elevates one individual's interest in personal religious exercise in the exact time and place of that individual's choosing over society's interest in protecting the separation between church and state, eroding the protections for religious liberty for all. Today's decision is particularly misguided because it elevates the religious rights of a school official who voluntarily accepted public employment and the limits that public employment entails over those of his students who are required to attend school and who this court has long recognized are particularly vulnerable and deserving of protection. In doing so, the court sets us down a perilous path in forcing states to entangle themselves with religion, with all of our rights hanging in the balance. As much as the court protests otherwise, today's decision is no victory for religious liberty. I respectfully and, dissent. Yeah, and let's let's also not um, dismiss or or ignore, pass over the importance of, you know, we're talking about people of different faiths. How about people of no faith? Mm-hmm. They also need to be protected because the First Amendment protects them. Maybe especially about the the the, the establishment clause right. of the United States Constitution. Yeah. So uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on these. 657-464-7609. You can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. So we also want to talk about the decision on Miranda Wright's protections. Civil rights advocates are crying foul over a decision handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court today. The court ruled that police officers who fail to read suspects their Miranda rights can't be sued. Joe Dane explains the potential fallout. The power of police to interrogate a suspect is enormous. The Miranda warning is intended to protect suspects from being unfairly treated. Today's decision weakens that protection. The 1963 arrest of a man in Phoenix led to a landmark Supreme Court ruling that is a household phrase. Police are required to tell suspects in custody of their Miranda rights, notifying them of their right to remain silent and their right to speak with an attorney. On Thursday, 
the Supreme Court ruled suspects who are not notified of their Miranda rights do not have the option to sue police for damages later. It is another consistent weakening of the Miranda doctrine. ASU law professor Gary Stewart wrote a book on Miranda rights. Stewart says the decision by the Supreme Court is based in good faith and is a sound legal decision reflecting the conservative makeup of the court. However, he warns it could do harm. Well, it will encourage that tiny minority of of police officers. It's a tiny minority who abuse these rules routinely, who solve crimes by lying to suspects by not telling the suspects what their constitutional rights are. This is one of the most completely wrong opinions of the Supreme Court I've read recently. ASU constitutional law attorney Paul Bender is more critical of the court, saying the right to sue should not be taken away. The reason why there's a federal statute that gives you damages if your constitutional rights are violated is because the federal government, Congress, thinks that if your constitutional rights are violated and harms you, you ought to be able to recover damages. The decision means police officers will have one more level of immunity as they do their jobs. Joe Dana, 12 News. So, listen, it is it is remarkable to me to watch the deterioration and, and the, the, the heightening of hypocrisy from the conservative movement and Republicans. You know, a, a movement I grew up in. I, I've, I've talked to Brittany about it, and I'm sure I've talked about it on the show many times, that Even as a Republican, I used to watch the show Cops and be enraged at their behavior. Because of the violation of people's rights. Violating people's rights, yeah. So if the Republican movement, if the conservative movement is about limited government and in protection of the individual's rights, all they're doing here is protecting not only police, they're protecting the government. Mm -hmm. Armed agents of the state who should have more limitations on them, not making their job easier to violate the rights of citizens. Yeah. Don't worry, though. Uh, The Boise police tweeted. Oh, oh, yeah. And they said that it is still going to be the expectation Mm. of their officers to read the Miranda rights prior to... Until until a lawsuit is attempted to be brought, and then, oh, sorry, the Supreme Court said blah, blah, blah. I mean... We know that cops are pretty honest, so I think they're telling the truth. (laughs) But that's the problem, right? It's the expectation. Okay, well, the cops have a lot of expectations, and we see how how that has been going for the profession generally in terms of them meeting those expectations. The point is that this was an important uh, right of the individual that you would be able to sue if the police used evidence that they obtained without advising you of your rights. And now the Supreme Court, this rogue court, is stripping away rights every every day with each day that passes. I think opinion days are coming to an end. They're getting ready to have their their break. Yeah. And I cannot wait because each day that passes, they're just taking more rights away. I mean, it's it's a an historic uh, Supreme Court cycle. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of coward cops who leave children to die. The Senate apparently did something. The media loves to call it historic. I know. They're really hyping it up like they're really, they changed some some lives here with this legislation. The Senate did come to an agreement, pass it on to the House. It's going to be signed. And um, it's supposed to be some level of gun control uh, 
I have my doubts. This bill is a compromise. It doesn't do everything I want. But what we are doing will save thousands of lives without violating anyone's Second Amendment rights. The sweeping legislation comes on the heels of several mass shootings across America, including the tragic killing of 21 people, including 19 students in Uvalde, Texas, and the murder of 10 people at a grocery store in Buffalo. These incidents spurred Congress to try to make significant changes to gun laws for the first time in years. Let's bring in NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Rafa now for more on this historic legislation. Ali, good morning. Let's first talk about the significance of the vote last night with this strong bipartisan and support. It was a, a rare moment. Both sides come together on this. Absolutely, Stephen. This was a huge act of bipartisanship on the Senate floor last night, and it's coming uh, nearly three decades since the last really major step on gun reform. And it came last night, the night before we mark uh, one month since that tragic mass shooting in Uvalde, which is really what got the ball rolling on this. We saw a group of senators uh, just come together and say that this really was going to be different, that this time uh, we couldn't afford to have no action on this. All of them coming together in the four weeks of negotiations uh, to really what came to fruition last night. As you mentioned, 15 Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, voting with all Democrats to get this passed, uh, really sparking some emotion on the Senate floor last night. There were uh, some families of victims of gun violence that were in the Senate gallery and lawmakers themselves getting emotional. Uh, Really, the weight of this moment not lost on lawmakers themselves, Stephen. And Ali, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy saying last night this bill was a compromise. Remind us of what's in this bill and how both parties were able to come together on this. This definitely was a compromise because both sides of the aisle didn't get exactly what they wanted. Remember, Democrats were calling for an all-out ban of assault weapons, raising the minimum age to be able to purchase a gun, Republicans uh, pushing for more money for school security. But the provisions in this bill, I'll list a few of them here, uh, really do signal a historic deal. Uh, This bill would expand mental health services and school security. It strengthens background checks to include juvenile records for people under the age of 21 looking to buy a gun. Remember, both of the shooters in Buffalo and Uvalde were both 18 years old. It also incentivizes states to pass red flag laws to take away guns uh, that courts uh, from people who co- that courts deem dangerous. And the last provision in this is uh, that it closes the so-called boyfriend loophole. That was really the last sticking point that we heard of from senators negotiating this, uh, this bill. Senators finally coming to an agreement on the definition of that, uh, considering it's serious dating partners who have been convicted of domestic abuse uh, saying they would no longer be able to purchase a gun. So in the bill, there's a lot of positive things. You just heard a lot of those positive things. It ends with talking about how this uh, gap known as the boyfriend loophole has been closed. Uh, However, many people have come forward to say that this loophole is not completely closed. Now, under current uh, federal law before this, this bipartisan legislation, actually. Anyone convicted of a misdemeanor of domestic violence or uh, subject to a domestic violence protection order could not have a gun. But this was only the case if the offender was a current or former spouse, 
if they shared a child with their victim, mm-hmm. or if they lived with their victim at any point. Now, think about writing that legislation, <laughs> and you're thinking, okay, like, what should the loophole be here? Like, what what people should be included in, right. in having this ban with a domestic violence or protection order, and uh, who, who should be allowed? And then you make it this, like, that specific. Well, listen. Instead of anyone who has a domestic violence charge or anyone. Right. who has a domestic violence protection order. I mean, the, the, where the rubber hits the road with legislation is the language. That's what we pay these people for is the nitty-gritty and the granular level of detail. It's not just, yeah, we're, we're going to call it the boyfriend loophole and then we'll let the courts decide what it means. Mm-hmm. You have to be specific. And they failed here. Because if a guy didn't live with the woman, doesn't have a kid with the woman... I'm generalizing here as far as genders are concerned because that's typically how it works. Uh, You got to be more specific. You got to do your job well. Yeah. So now in this new gun safety bill, it still unfortunately isn't enough and it leaves a loophole open for domestic abusers in dating relationships. The compromise package does not include all the broad measures Democrats sought, but it does include a variety of significant steps from increased funding for mental health to more comprehensive background checks for 18 to 21 year olds. And it includes one key provision that almost tanked the whole deal. Operating under the boyfriend loophole. The so-called boyfriend loophole continues to be a a challenge. We're going to close the boyfriend loophole. Closing the boyfriend loophole. A long-standing goal of advocates for domestic abuse victims. The boyfriend loophole is a gap in federal law. A gap because right now, federal law only bans domestic abusers from buying or owning guns if they were convicted of abuse of a parent, spouse, someone with whom they share a child, or a significant other they were living with at the time. But what about abusive relationships where the couple is dating? but do not fit into those other classifications. According to the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions, partner homicides drop 13% when protective orders cover dating partners. We're gonna make sure that every domestic abuser, whether it be a spouse or a boyfriend, has their guns taken away. Yet, despite the fact that researchers have found more than half of the gunmen who committed mass shootings between 2014 and 2019 either killed an intimate partner or family member or had a history of domestic violence, the National Rifle Association has lobbied for years against closing that loophole, arguing that the move, quote, is exploiting real problems like domestic violence to opportunistically target civil rights, like the Second Amendment and constitutional due process. That's right. People who beat up their girlfriends have lobbyists fighting to preserve their ability to buy guns. And gun safety advocates say the NRA's due process argument is a moot point under the new bill. This bill goes out of its way to ensure that due process protections are included. So with this newly passed bill, is the boyfriend loophole finally closed? No, it is not. They went a long way toward addressing it, but um, it only includes people that have been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. So domestic abusers of a girlfriend or a boyfriend will only have to relinquish their guns if they are convicted of a misdemeanor, which means victims who have taken one of the first steps of getting a restraining order will still have to live knowing their abusers could be fully armed. 
these are obviously extremely dangerous individuals, but unfortunately it does not include those who have been served with a domestic violence restraining order. That moment when somebody, a victim of domestic violence, goes to seek a restraining order is often the most dangerous time for that individual. And perhaps most significantly, this bill only applies to folks who beat their girlfriends after President Biden signs it into law. It does not apply to domestic violence before that point. It does not apply retroactively. And unlike in Florida, where abusers have to prove they're now safe and got their act together, this law has an automatic restoration of all firearms rights after five years for one-time offenders. All of which is a win for the NRA. According to the lead Republican negotiator on the bill, Texas Senator John Cornyn, who touted these limitations and others to a room full of his GOP colleagues. Most of his Republican Senate colleagues and the gun groups lobbying for the girlfriend beaters, they still oppose the bill anyway. I think we've threaded the needle away in a, in a way that uh, protects the right of law-abiding citizens, but tries to get at the root of the problem that produced this shooting in Uvalde and has produced similar shooting elsewhere. And I think ultimately will save lives. And to me, that's the ultimate test. Saving lives. That's what this bill is truly aiming to do to prevent another school shooting or grocery store massacre or a senseless death of a domestic abuse survivor. So will it? Without a doubt. It really is a momentous occasion and it should not be downplayed. But of course, in my opinion, the work is not done and we'll keep going and keep fighting um, to make sure that all of the loopholes in our gun laws are closed moving forward. And this is what Senator Chris Murphy keeps emphasizing, that not everything the Democrats wanted were achieved. And you hear that in the language that Jake Tapper used in that clip where he says that domestic abusers have lobbyists, that they were lobbying for girlfriend beaters. I mean, he was using very strong language, and I appreciate that. accurate language. Yeah, because that's what people need to hear. And I think these are some of the -the behind-the-scenes things that we don't often hear about when it comes to uh, negotiations regarding legislation. And... I mean, who would be against expanding the pool of protection? Yeah, the NRA. <laughs> for people who are uh, likely statistically to be killed by their uh, partners. I, I mean, listen, it, it is, it really lays bare the agenda of the NRA. And they always want to talk about, well, we're here to protect the rights of law abiding citizens when, no, that's not the case. That's not true. Mm-hmm. They're here to protect the rights of the gun. Right. And to get the gun into the hands of as many people as they can. Right. No matter their 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 situation, whether it be in their past through criminality or violence or whatever. Right. That's what they're here for. Yes, absolutely. We'd love to know what you think. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. I doubt it is a listener supported podcast. Support comes from our most loyal, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners just like you via Patreon. Your support on Patreon for as little as $2 a month would help keep the conversation moving forward one podcast at a time. If you have a few dollars to spare each month, we invite you to help produce the show by joining the Patreon family. Please visit patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. We would like to thank our new Patreon supporters, Rolden D. Rolden D. Martin V. Martin V. And Rick L. Rick 
L. Thank you so very much for your support on Patreon. Thank you to our new Patreon supporters, our existing Patreon supporters. We could not do this without you. We are still mailing out the stickers and the magnets when you become a new Patreon supporter. We are brainstorming what our end of the year Patreon gift will be. We have our monthly You Zoom. get a car! You get a car! No. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> if only, right? We have our monthly uh, Zoom hangouts at the end of the month, the last Saturday of the month. So in July, it's going to be Saturday, July 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We will send that link out early to ensure that you get it and, and make sure that you have it before the call starts. And we really enjoy those calls. We had a great one this past week. We appreciate all of you that listen to us, that engage with the show, send in your thoughts, uh, are supportive and in ways that we didn't think was possible. Yeah. So thank you very much for helping us do what we do here. Absolutely. We love you guys very much. All right. Moving on. Uh, this last week has been a lot of information related to the, the investigation into the insurrection, the attempted overthrow of the United States government by way of overturning a free and fair settled American election. The last, the second to last hearing that they did was about... The fifth uh, one. The fifth one was about um, the, 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 what I believe to be a criminal conspiracy to worm their way into the DOJ, place a stooge at the top of the DOJ, and initiate either fake probes and investigations into voter fraud or just to announce that they believed it was fraudulent and then let the states take it from there. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Clark, um, at the head of that, we've seen the DOJ actually acting and they have um, seized phones from John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark and all of these this cast of characters. We're not going to talk about that today, although that was gripping testimony and really... Although they are not heroes, they just did their jobs, people did stand in the gap. And that is good, mm -hmm. that people did their jobs. Yes. Thanks for doing your job. Yeah. It's great. That's going to continue to be a theme as we talk about the latest, right. the 6th, January 6th committee hearing, where Cassidy Hutchison, the former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and... People are, are, are kind of lauding her and saying that she's a hero as well. Right. And again, this is someone who worked for Ted Cruz, worked in the Trump White House. Worked for Steve Scalise, the okay, guy who even said... even worse. <laughs> he's, he's the guy that said that he's just like David Duke without all the baggage. So she's a... She's a tried and true Republican MAGA person. Yeah. She's not a hero. Yeah, and also she's coming out now. I mean, great, good, perfect. We love it. Thank you so much. But also... It's been a while. It's You've had a lot of time. Yeah, where were you doing impeachment? Where were you in the intervening months when you could have been like, oh, shit, I have all kinds of knowledge because I was on the ground when all this shit was going on. Yeah, and so all that to say, she's not a hero, but yes, we appreciate her coming forward and giving her testimony because this was, this was very important. We found out that Trump knew, Trump knew that the insur insurrectionists were armed yeah. He, he wanted them to be armed. He wanted them to go to the Capitol. He didn't care that they were there and armed because he knew they weren't there to attack him. Yeah, they wanted. he wanted to remove magnetometers mm -hmm. so they could come into the rally space, his his ellipse speech space. But he didn't want them like, oh, yeah, make sure they're, they're disarmed. 
No, you don't want to do that because if you're going to dispatch them to go to the Capitol, yeah, they're less effective if they don't have their spears and their their pitchforks and their 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 torches. Right. Yeah. And so the a la like a Shrek movie. <laughs> so the former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows testified that Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows knew that things were likely to get pretty intense. Mr. Chairman, we uh, will begin today with an exchange that first provided Ms. Hutchinson a tangible sense of the ongoing planning for the events of January 6th. On January 2nd, four days before the attack on our Capitol, President Trump's lead lawyer, Mr. Giuliani, was meeting with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and others. Ms. Hutchinson, do you remember Mr. Giuliani meeting with Mr. Meadows on January 2nd, 2021? I do. He met with Mr. Meadows in the evening of January 2nd, 2021. And we understand that you walked Mr. Giuliani out of the White House that night, um, and he talked to you about January 6th. What do you remember him saying? As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him and saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's, he's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it. And did you go back uh, then up to the West Wing and tell Mr. Meadows about your conversation with Mr. Giuliani? I did. After Mr. Giuliani had left the campus that evening, I went back up to our office and I found Mr. Meadows in his office on the couch. He was scrolling through his phone. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. So they knew. And if you think Mark Meadows, the chief of staff for the White House and Donald Trump, isn't talking to Donald Trump about this on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, you're high. Mm -hmm. If he knew, Donald Trump knew, without a doubt, no equivocation, full stop. Well, and Liz Cheney, the co-chair of the committee, played a mashup of police radio transmissions on the day of the insurrection, January 6th, that indicated that people were armed, that they had guns. Trump's speech were screened so they could attend the rally at the Ellipse. They had weapons and other items that were confiscated, pepper spray, knives, Brass knuckles, tasers, body armor, gas masks, batons, blunt weapons. And those were just from the people who chose to go through the security for the president's event on the ellipse. Not the several thousand members of the crowd who refused to go through the mags and watched from the lawn near the Washington Monument. The select committee has learned about reports from outside the magnetometers and has obtained police radio transmissions identifying individuals with firearms, including AR-15s, near the ellipse on the morning of January 6th. Let's listen. The individual is entering a white male, about six feet tall, 10 bills, brown cow. 
cowboy boots. He's got blue jeans, I mean a blue jean jacket, and underneath his blue jean jacket, the complainant's boat saw a stock with AR-15. He's gonna be with a group of individuals, about five to eight, five to uh, eight other individuals. Two of the individuals in that group at the base of the tree, near the porta potties, were wearing green fatigues, green olive dress style fatigues, about five eight, five nine, skinny, uh, skinny white males, brown cowboy boots. They had Glock style pistols in their waistband. 8736 with the message that subject, um, weapon on his right hip. After that, he's in the tree. Motor one, make sure PPD knows they have an elevated threat in the tree south side of Constitution Avenue. Look for the don't tread on me flag, American flag face mask, cowboy boots, weapon on the right, right side hip. We got three men walking down the street in fatigue, carrying AR-15, copy at Fort Street Independent. And all of this took place, keep in mind, remember that this all is taking place in real time prior to the actual insurrection. It's not like they're setting this up. Oh, we're going to we're going to we're going to say there was a bunch of weapons. They were identifying threats in real time because the narrative right now from Republicans and conservatives is that, well, they they were there peaceful. It was a spontaneous thing. They didn't find any weapons. No one entered the Capitol with weapons. And that's just not true. It is absolutely factually incorrect. And that was really one of the key points that she made during her testimony, which is confirmation that now we know that Trump knew that there were weapons and that the people that he had summoned to the Capitol were armed. So, Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that Mr. Ornato told the president about weapons at the rally on the morning of January 6th? That's what Mr. Ornato relayed to me. And here's how you characterize Mr. Meadows' general response when people raised concerns about what could happen on January 6th. So at the time, in the days leading up to the 6th, there were lots of public reports about how things might go bad on the 6th, and even the potential for violence. If I'm hearing you correctly, what stands out to you is that Mr. Meadows did not share those concerns, or at least did not act on those concerns. Did not act on those concerns would be accurate. But other people raised them to, to him, like in this exchange, you mentioned that Mr. Arnado pulled him aside. That's correct. So Mr. Ornato that they keep referring to is Tony Ornato, a uh, top White House aide. And he was in one of the meetings listing the different types of weapons that they knew that they had. And Mark Meadows seemed very unconcerned about this. He was staring at his phone. He was not really paying attention. So Tony Ornato is listing the different weapons that they have. And he looks up, according to uh, Miss Hutchinson, and says, uh, anything else? You mentioned that... Um some of the weapons that people had at the rally included flagpoles, oversized um, sticks or flagpoles, um, bear spray. Is there anything else that you recall hearing about that um, the people who would gather on the lips had? I recall Tony and I having a conversation with Mark probably around 10 a.m., 10, 15 a.m., where I remember... Tony mentioning knives, guns in the form of pistols and rifles, um, bear spray, body armor, spears, and flagpoles. Spears were one item, flagpoles were one item, and then Tony had relieved me 
something to the effect of, and these effing people are fastening spears onto the ends of flagpoles. Now, one of the things to keep in mind here is that Tony Ornato has pushed back on this, but he also pushed back on um, another Trump aide who testified under oath. She testified under oath. And he said that what she said was a lie. Now he's saying what Cassidy Hutchinson is saying is a lie. Yet he is not coming to testify under oath that it's a lie. Mm-hmm. I mean, you that you got to put your money where your mouth is, brother, if you're going to be talking about people lying. <laughs> well, you would think, but apparently, apparently not. So... One thing that came out of this also, there was some like tabloidy type thing. Yeah, very with, like, reality showish. Yeah, like Donald Trump getting so angry that he's smashing dishes. He's getting ketchup all over the walls I, when he throws his dinner. Can we can we just very briefly who's, marinate in the drama? Who's shocked at all that <laughs> there's ketchup on a plate with Donald Trump is eating something? Yeah, I mean, come on. Well, we and we heard from her that she was like cleaning ketchup off the wall, like she specifically yeah, in the Oval Office. Yeah, because he's he's throwing his uh, hamburger. Well done, I'm assuming. So uh, <laughs> part of what he was furious about is that his his crowd. Uh, didn't look big enough on January 6th. Of course, this is not surprising. This fits with what we know about Donald Trump, that he is very concerned with his crowd size. Yes. And the text messages also stress that President Trump kept mentioning the OTR and off-the-record movement. We're going to come back and ask you about that in a minute. But could you tell us, first of all, who it is in the text who was furious? The he in that text that I was referring to was the president. And uh, why was he furious, Ms. Hutchinson? He was furious because he wanted the arena that we had on the ellipse to be maxed out at capacity for uh, all attendees. The advance team had relayed to him that the mags were free-flowing. Everybody who wanted to come in had already come in, but he still was angry about the extra space and wanted more people to come in. And did you go to the rally in the presidential motorcade? I, I was there, yes, in the motorcade. And were you backstage uh, with the president and other members of his staff and family? I was. And you told us, Ms. Hutchinson, about particular comments that you heard while you were in the tent area. When we were in the offstage announced area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. Um, one of the reasons, which I previously stated, was because he wanted it to be full and for people to not feel excluded because they'd come far to watch him at the rally. Um, and he felt the mags were at fault for not letting everybody in. But another leading reason, and likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons, what the Secret Service deemed as weapons and our, our weapons. But when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation I was, in the, I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing bags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. And that tells you everything you need to know right there. Mm-hmm. That not only did he know they had weapons, not only did he not care, they're not here to hurt me. 
that last part is clutch for me is that they can march to the Capitol after mm-hmm. not impromptu, not spontaneous. Mm-hmm. This was a planned event. He knew after the speech, they would be marching to the Capitol armed to do his bidding. Yeah, and there was some testimony that made that apparent, too, that White House lawyers actually had concerns ahead of time about Donald Trump's speech on January 6th and that they were trying to work with the wording on that speech to ensure that he was covered legally and uh, obviously concerned about him going off on his own little tangents, which we also know that he does. But it's remarkable that his primary concern, again, he's fundamentally just who he is, Donald Trump. Yeah. He's self-involved. He only cares about himself. And he his primary concern was how large the crowd appeared. He wanted to have a show of yeah. force. Well, it, it's interesting that it, it's two competing interests. He wants to stay president, and he needs the mob, the armed mob, to attack the Capitol but even even though that's the paramount important thing, even even then it's like, uh, my crowd size, y'all. Mm-hmm. I need the pictures to really show the gravitas of my crowd. Right. So she also testified that there were discussions about Trump going to the Capitol yeah. with the insurrectionists, which his team, by and large, did not want him to do because it would possibly open him up to legal consequences. Yeah. And uh, she testified that there were discussions about him like having another speech outside of the Capitol before going into the Capitol. And that there was also a conversation about him going into a house chamber at one point. Like he was, he was going to go in with these people. Yeah. I mean, it is, that's the remarkable part of this. And when you take it into account with the other stuff about Rudy talking to Cassidy Hutchinson and saying, he's going to be powerful. He's going to look powerful and all of this stuff. Imagine Donald Trump outside. They probably would have given him a bullhorn or something. And he's he wanted to be whipping the crowd into even more of a, a violent frenzy outside the door of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. He wanted to escort them into the Capitol. He wanted to go to the House floor. This was a coup. Right. That is exactly what this was. Ms. Hutchinson... When you returned to the White House in the motorcade after the president's speech, where did you go? When I returned to the White House, I walked upstairs towards the chief of staff's office, and I noticed Mr. Renato lingering outside of the office. Once we had made eye contact, he quickly waved me to go into his office, which was just across the hall from mine. When I went in, he shut the door, and I noticed Bobby Angle, who is the head of Mr. Trump's security detail, sitting in a chair, just looking somewhat discombobulated and a little lost. Um, and I looked at Tony, and he had said, did you effing hear what happened in the Beast? I said, no, Tony, I, I just got back. What happened? Tony proceeded to tell me that... When the president got in the beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the -the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing, the president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, 
Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. None of this is surprising because of Donald Trump's poor impulse control. Right. We, we, we've seen a, a lifetime of Donald Trump and the evidence of him having poor impulse control. So it would make sense that someone who is consumed by this outward display of power and wanting his crowd to look as big as possible, wanting as many people to be there. He, he's talking about during his speech, we're going to walk down there together. Right. I'm going to be with you. Right. I mean, he that was his plan. That was what he wanted. So, of course, he's going to be upset if someone stands in his way or tells him no. Yeah, a lot of the, like, even when we heard this yesterday, and they kept using the word the beast, which is the the, the presidential limousine. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's a limo. It's shaped like a limo. And even in my head, I was like, why are they saying, the, there's no, I can't, I just can't conceive of a, of a situation where girthy Donald Trump would be able to reach forward in a limo. And, and, but that wasn't the case. They were misusing the word beast because that's why the January 6th committee played footage of him getting into a Suburban. Mm-hmm. It was in one of the Suburbans, not in the limousine. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, if you've ever been in a Suburban, lots of room, absolutely, without a doubt, Donald Trump could reach forward and grab the steering wheel. Right. So all of this is lining up. None of this is out of, uh, out of the realm of reasonable for anybody who has witnessed Donald Trump for five fucking minutes of his miserable life. Right. And it does not bode well. For him, the president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, "Sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol." Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel, and Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And was Mr. Engel in the room as Mr. Ornato told you this story? He was. Did Mr. Engel correct or disagree with any part of the story for Mr. Ornato? Mr. Engel did not correct or disagree with any part of the story. Did Mr. Engel or Mr. Ornato ever after that tell you that what Mr. Ornato had just said was untrue? Neither Mr. Ornato nor Mr. Engel told me ever that it was untrue. And despite this altercation, this physical altercation during the ride back to the White House, President Trump still demanded to go to the Capitol. Here's and Donald Trump has responded to this part of the testimony specifically on yeah. his very successful social network, Truth Social. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that, uh, Jesse, you talked about this a little bit in your YouTube videos today about him being like a body language expert. We'll get to that. 
but very hilarious. Specifically about this story, he says also a handwriting expert. Her fake story that I tried to grab the steering wheel of the White House limousine in order to steer it to the Capitol building is sick in quotation marks and fraudulent, very much like the unselect committee itself. Uh, he thinks he's so fucking clever. Wouldn't even have been possible to do such a ridiculous thing. Her story of me throwing food is also false, and why would she have to clean it up? I hardly knew who she was. <laughs> I don't even know her. Right. She only gets coffee. Yeah. The people who clean up after me, I know. Yeah, it, it is. He then went on to say, talk about her handwriting being that of a wacko or... Her body language is, it tells everything. I mean, just, what is he doing? Her body language is that of a total bull dot, dot, dot yeah. artist. Fantasy land. He also can't spell uh, Cheney correctly. Maybe he's doing that as like a, a flex on yeah, her. Isn't Lon Cheney like a an actor? Didn't he play Dracula or something? He spelled it C-H-A-N-E-Y. Yeah. Uh, not a smart guy. I don't know if you know Brittany Page. I, I know that uh, you venerate Donald Trump quite a bit. Oh. Finally, you're coming to see the truth that he is really just kind of a, a dum-dum. So. Let's, 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 uh, let's not start with that. So another part of the testimony, which was quite damning, was that there uh, is a quote that Ms. Hutchison referenced from White House counsel Pat Cipollone mm-hmm. when he said, quote, we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable. And this was specifically about concerns that they had if Donald Trump actually physically went to the Capitol with the insurrectionists. Did you have any conversations with Pat Cipollone about his concerns about the president going to the Capitol on January 6th? On January 3rd, Mr. Cipollone had approached me knowing that Mark had raised the prospect of going up to the Capitol on January 6th. Mr. Cipollone and I had a brief private conversation where he said to me, we need to make sure that this doesn't happen. This would be legally a a terrible idea for us. We have serious legal concerns if we go up to the Capitol that day. And he then urged me to continue relaying that to Mr. Meadows because... It's my understanding that Mr. Cipollone thought that Mr. Meadows was indeed pushing this along with the president. And we understand, Ms. Hutchinson, that you also spoke to Mr. Cipollone on the morning of the 6th as you were about to go to the rally on the ellipse. And Mr. Cipollone said something to you like, make sure the movement to the Capitol does not happen. Is that correct? That's correct. I saw Mr. Cipollone right before I walked out onto West Exec that morning. And Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. Now, listen, I, up to this point, have had have my doubts that Donald Trump was going to be face any consequences whatsoever. And after this and the previous hearing, I mean, they're getting more and more information out there. I think the chances are, are more likely than not that he will face some kind of legal consequence from this. You think with each hearing, the odds improve? 
Yeah, well, I just don't see any, unless unless Merrick Garland is just a like a fucking sleeper cell in, in, in service to Donald Trump. There's no, you can't just ignore this. And I just, I don't know, maybe I'm being optimistic Jesse like I normally am. But I think it's like a 70-30. Mm, wow. I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty likely. Where were you before? I think I was, I was 60-40, no. Okay. I mean, I don't know the exact, but it was something like that. I was just, uh, it's probably more likely than not that he gets off. Yeah. Well, there have been several attempts of the Republicans to try to undermine her testimony. And that includes the House Republican Judiciary Committee's Twitter account. They tweeted that this is all hearsay. And, of course, these are firsthand observations. And much of what she testified is is, is not disputed. I mean, it, it it's backs up previous testimony. Also, she's giving her account of conversations she had. She right. was in the room right. with, having the conversations. Right. What? Right. Um, let's go back real quickly, though, about the criminality part of this, about the fact that crimes were committed. I think it's reasonable to be able to just state plainly that we know crimes were committed because John Eastman pled the Fifth Amendment over a hundred times during his testimony. Mm-hmm. The way the Fifth Amendment works is if you're tired that day, you don't get to plead the Fifth because you don't want to talk. <laughs> if you just don't want to cooperate, you don't get to. When you're subpoenaed, you are compelled to testify. And the only way out of it is if you have a reasonable belief that your testimony will incriminate you, Mm -hmm. meaning you believe you committed crimes and you're going to be admitting to crimes. So a hundred times, even if we do a one for one, which I think is a little excessive, John Eastman thought that answering over 100 questions were going to lead to his, his, his criminal prosecution. And the same can be said for Michael Flynn, former lieutenant general in the United States Army, former disgraced national security advisor to Donald Trump, also pled the fifth, but about weird questions that were being asked. Let's briefly view a clip of General Mike Flynn taking the Fifth Amendment. Uh, General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Do we have Yes. So he's consulting with his lawyer. They go away for a minute and 36 seconds. Now they're back. Could you repeat the question, please? Yes. General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Is that, can I get a clarification? Is that a moral question or are you asking a legal question? I'm asking both. I said, I, I said, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified morally? You believe the violence on January 6th was justified legally? General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? Yes, 
and Cassidy Hutchison testified that Donald Trump talked to both Roger Stone and Michael Flynn on January 5th. Think about those answers, though. Do, do you believe that violence was justified on January 6th? He believes his answer would incriminate him. And he believes his answer would incriminate him if he answers truthfully about whether or not he believes in the peaceful transfer of power. This is a man who rose his right hand, presumably putting his left hand on a Bible, and swore a solemn oath to protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And he's saying it would incriminate him if he answers truthfully about the peaceful transfer of power or whether their violence was justified, either morally or legally. I wonder how much, Jesse, you think that the the closing part of the January 6th committee session where they talked about the responses that people connected to Trump have uh, received when when Trump, when people connected to him find out that they are going to be giving their testimony to the yeah, committee. Like witness intimidation. Yeah. And two of the responses that they that they put as examples uh, of answers to the question of whether or not they've been contacted by anyone attempting to impact their testimony. One was what they said to me, as long as I continue to be a team player, they know I'm on the team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know, I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they have reminded me a couple of times that Trump does read transcripts. And just to keep that in mind, as I proceed through my depositions and interviews with the committee. I mean, this is textbook witness tampering, witness intimidation. And then a second person said, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know that he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. So I'm wondering if if this is something that, you know, Michael Flynn has on his mind, knowing that Donald Trump is uh, going to, quote unquote, read his transcript and that he wants to signal continued loyalty and continue to be in in Trump world. Well, let's let's remind the audience. You may have forgotten, but uh, Michael Flynn, who is a QAnon ding dong or at least has is a QAnon grifter, was at a rally after the January 6th insurrection, and some guy got up and was asking him about a, the, the, we need a, 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 he called it a Minamar, but he meant Myanmar-style coup. Mm-hmm. And Mike Flynn agreed. He said, yeah, that's absolutely what we need. He's advocating for coup, for overthrow of the United States government. So maybe, maybe his answer would incriminate him. He should be maybe charged with seditious conspiracy and maybe even treason. It's it's an alarming that you've got your true believers and then you've got your grifters and and Donald Trump is is leading them all. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Well, one thing that came out of the 5th January 6th committee, I believe, is that we learned about several Republicans that were requesting pardons related mm-hmm. to January 6th and this this hearing was no different we found out that uh Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows wanted pardons and yeah. i believe this was another part of the testimony that is backing up previous testimony yeah this would be this would now count eight people who sought pardons from Donald Trump and again 
along with the Fifth Amendment, you don't get pardoned for for a bad reputation. You don't get pardoned for cancel culture. You get pardoned for crimes. If you seek a pardon, you believe you committed a crime. That's what you want a pardon for. Ms. Hutchinson, did Rudy Giuliani ever suggest that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? He did. Ms. Hutchinson, did White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows ever indicate that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? Mr. Meadows did seek that pardon. Yes, ma'am. So, like we said, we're not going to be covering some of the tabloidy things yeah. about the ketchup and all that if you funny wanna... but not important sure yeah and the committee doesn't have a, a hearing coming up on the schedule they are taking a break this was in an unscheduled hearing it was one that they announced last minute with a surprise uh, witness that they kind of teased so i imagine if something comes through they find something important they have someone who's willing to come forward that they will do the same thing add something onto the schedule last minute but as of now nothing planned until july which is right around the corner yeah so we're going to keep following this we're going to keep following the supreme court um a lot of news and 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 now more than ever Listen, as much as we do criticize Democrats and the things that aren't done right and the things that aren't done well enough, the things that that need to be criticized, we have to remain involved and engaged and operational as a political block of voters. Because if we don't, the other side is trying to strip away your rights. They're trying to destroy our very democracy as we speak. So if you get complacent or you get depressed and you just get lethargic about it we're gonna lose our country to take a page or a saying out of donald trump's playbook except in this case it's true so we we would we would encourage you to 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 stay engaged and stay active and stay motivated uh, because we need you um desperately anyway we're gonna leave you there we love you guys we appreciate you very much we'd love to hear from you six five seven Four six four seventy six zero nine. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. We will see you next time. Until we do, for Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollamore, and this has been I Doubt It.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.